Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research podcast. The following episode is taken from our Think and Drink series of talks, which are informal conversations by humanities faculty, researchers, and practitioners on a range of topics. Please subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook for notifications on future events. Welcome, everyone, to the Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research Think and Drink series of virtual talks. Hopefully, you have your beverage of choice. We're ready. We hope you're all as well and healthy as possible, given the state of the world that we live in at the moment. I'm Beth Angerman Merkel, and among various hats that I wear on campus, I direct the University of Wyoming Science Communication Initiative. The title of tonight's conversation is The History and Reality of Protest and Race in America. Tonight's moderator is Dr. Frederick Douglass Dixon, a member of the WIRE Steering Committee. Dr. Dixon is on the faculty of the UW School of Culture, Gender, and Social Justice, where he also directs the Black Studies Center. A native Chicagoan, Dr. Dixon is a second-generation historian and a social movement researcher. Please help me welcome Dr. Dixon and our speakers. Thank you, Bethann. Uh, thank Wire. Thank our host. Uh, thank everybody who's joined us as panelists. And this is a very unique Wire Think and Drink. Now, the Think and Drink series have become very popular, which means they're very successful. Uh, when the pandemic struck in full mode, Wire was still producing what we call culturally competent dialogue. And today is one of those days that we want to look at this in a couple ways. So we have people who will give their thoughts, who are experts in their fields, but yet practitioners. So there's this unique development that we will have tonight. But before we move any further, this what, what makes this a very interesting and unique think and drink with WIRE is that this is the introduction of the University of Wyoming's Black Studies Center. We will be up and running in the fall. And for our introduction, we could have not a better conversation than to discuss the idea of protest in America, how it developed, what it looked like through social movements, as well as what it looks like today. Everyone that you will hear from will be able to give a unique perspective that's grounded in accuracy and engagement. So we want to move right along. And I want to introduce our guest, Dr. Leslie Burrow McNamore. Professor Emeritus, Jackson State University, JSU. American civil rights activist. And if you guys have ever heard of Dr. McLemore, he has an iconic standing in many ways in the civil rights movement. There's a couple of those things we can look at it. Let's never forget he's a political scientist. He studied directly under the great Fannie Lou Hamer. Also, one of the delegates to the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and 1964's Democratic Convention in Atlantic City. So Dr. McLemore brings a wealth of civil rights movement critiques and how that moved forward. So we're just great, we're grateful that he joined us and we're glad to have him. So one of our speakers will be Dr. Leslie McLemore. Uh, another speaker is Dr. Sundiata Chachua. He's a professor of African-American studies and history at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. He's an author of multiple books, one being America's First Black Town, Brooklyn, Illinois, from 1830 to 1915. And another book, Race Struggles. And one thing that I can explain to you about 
Dr. Chachua is he's one of his generations and he transcends generations, greatest historians. Uh, he's completely involved in the idea of using the standpoint theory and pitching his thoughts and his claims from the most marginalized population. So we want to welcome him as well, too. One of the things we like to talk about, Doc, as we move forward is the connection of one thing that you wrote, um, we believe it was murder and how that connects to today. And our last but definitely not least speaker is Dr. David Stovall, Professor of African American Studies, what we consider to be a social justice practitioner and the author of Jim Crow Schools, The Impact of Charters on Public Education. A lifelong Chicagoan Southside, one of my closest friends and the idea of understanding how we look when we use the education to bridge with the community. So I thank all of you all for coming. And as we move forward, uh, let's go to Dr. McLemore. Dr. McLemore, um, could you give us an overview of um, what you're thinking about right now when it comes to this conversation overarching with history and protest? Uh, well, I, th I think I am, I think we are in a uh, unique uh, moment and place in, uh, in American history, actually the history of the world. Uh, we are witnessing uh, ongoing protests uh, around the globe, uh, protests based upon an incident that occurred in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, the George Floyd uh, story is one that has transformed uh, the thinking and it's caused more reflection, I think, than we have witnessed in a, a number of years. Uh, it is going to provide a lot of fodder for, for scholars and activists for, for years to come. And it's an opportunity for us to move forward in a way that we have not been able to move forward as a country and as a race. And uh, I think it's, it's unique uh, looking back and reflecting on uh, what happened in the 60s and 70s, but this is clearly an added dimension of, of, what, is, of what has occurred and, and what the possibilities are as we move into the future. So it is clearly a period of reflection. We are living in uh, a strange period in our history too, but also there are opportunities that we really have not had before. Thank you, Dr. McLemore. And on that note, as we further move to Dr. Chachu, if before we get into the questions, if you could give us your overarching thought about, let's say what we've seen this summer in the social atmosphere here in America. Well, Fred, I think that uh, what we're seeing is another wave of uh, black liberation movement activism. <clears throat> and I would argue that this moment is in many ways similar to uh, the 1879 period in which African-Americans started an exodus movement to leave the South, go out West and build all black towns. Uh, the 1890s, which while it is the nadir of the African-American experience, according to Rayford Logan, and I think the data supports Logan's uh, conclusions, but it is also a moment of uh, African-Americans beginning to build social movements and an institution, a national institutional network, the 1930s, the jobs campaigns, and of course, the civil rights movement 
in the Black Power Movement. These are all waves in the Black Liberation Movement. And this moment is one of those waves. And in some ways, it mirrors those other moments, particularly in terms of the circumstances that lead to it. And in other ways, uh, it, differ it, it differs substantively. But the point is that these moments, by and large, they come about a generation and a half. So that you have to make the most of these moments, right? And so the question for us in this particular uprising or, or, or upswell is whether or not the, the goals and aspirations of the Black Liberation Movement will be aborted, that is to say, repressed through the fascist policies of Donald Trump, whether they will be, uh, what would you say, stillborn, stillborn in the sense that uh, people go for the kind of liberal reforms that's coming out of the Congressional Black Caucus and mainstream Black politicians and civil writers. Uh, and then the question is, well, as Fanon said, Franz Fanon said, that each generation must discover its mission and either fulfill it or betray it. If the generation fulfills their mission, this generation that's leading this upsurge, if they fulfill their mission, then we're talking about pushing us higher up the mountain, right? But that requires that you build from the last high tide of struggle. We've yet to see that type of development yet, but we are hopeful that uh, this will be a moment that raises the tide in terms of uh, Black struggle and Black advancement. Thank you, Doc. And I hope that we can go back to that and get in a little bit more depth because I think Fanon absolutely sets the pace for what we want to discuss tonight. So that being the case, um, I want to move right to Dave Stovall, Dr. Dave Stovall. And in your thought, being in Chicago and looking at what happened as a result of George Floyd and the idea of the response of the community. Where do you see and what do you see right now being on the south side of Chicago? And I want to thank you all again for having me. And I take uh, Dr. Chajua's point very seriously because I think here in Chicago, we're seeing this Fanonian moment, right? We're seeing young people respond in a particular way and say, look, enough is enough. And then when they do that deeper history that Dr. Chajua just reminded us around, what they're seeing is we've been here before, right? So it's not just George Floyd, it's Emmett Till, it's for my generation, Fred Amadou Diallo, this is Breonna Taylor, this is Tony McDade, this is Armand Aubrey, right? So these things in this, for, and for us in Chicago, it's Laquan McDonald, it's, it's Rakia Boyd, Right, so we have to be willing to say like, you know, this understanding around black life and precarity is something that is foundational to life in the United States. And I think young people are seeing that and saying, well, if our life is foundationally and functionally precarious, then we're gonna take our own, we're gonna take our own chances and demand what it is that we need, right? And what I appreciate about this particular moment and what we're seeing in terms of the defund police movement or what have you, it's young people saying, look, reform is not enough. 
the systems that we have are unacceptable in their function. We need something else. And what I really appreciate again is their capacity to think about what can be built, right? And, I, and so again, to this point around we're revisiting some moments, but also projecting new ones, right? And again, the movement is nascent, right? This is something that is just starting, is just happening for this generation of young folks, say from the ages of 14 to 20, 25. Some of them have seen this and have created their own formations like Asada's Daughters, Black Youth Project 100. So some of the organizations that we're seeing that are moving locally and nationally or the movement for Black Lives. So again, because we're in this Fanonian moment, right, where young people are making the decision to determine their, their destiny and whether or not to fulfill it or betray it, we're seeing this on the street in real time. And I think this moment now allows for us to build on the previous histories while also stating that we are clear, and this is borrowing from Black Power, that reform is not enough. We do not want this, the, this, this thing that has perpetually castigated us to improve itself, right? So when Malcolm said, there is a foot on your neck, you have to make a decision to have the foot lift up six inches or to sever the foot. And I think this is a moment where young folks are saying, it is time to sever that foot. And we uh, think about this in ways that now are moving us forward. But here in Chicago, I definitely see that Fanonian moment without question. Thank you, Dr. Stowe. Uh, I, I wanted to bring together before we move that this generation, as many have recognized, is a generation that has succeeded without what we have known as civil rights training. Uh, they have succeeded in many ways. And let's be clear about who this generation is of our youth. In many ways, this generation is the grandchildren of the crack epidemic. They have become fomented in rebellion because a lot of times some of their first contact with policing came from a school property. They came from inside the school. So they have a different vantage point. They have different goals. And in their outcomes, we can see that even without what we call formal civil rights training, this group has been, and for quite some time, very ready for this moment. And then again, as Dr. Stovall said, they've had so many repeat offenders that when you look at exactly what happened, they have been trained in many ways to become callous to the killing of, along with the black on black crime. So I think they are able to separate it, compartmentalize it, and say exactly what it is that they think is important. So as we move forward, uh, Dr. McLemore, when we think about the civil rights movement and your role and how that leads us to where we are, I think about student organizations like SNCC and even you know some of the things that happened with SCLC. My question to you, Dr. McLemore, is as a veteran of, of the civil rights movement, particularly in Mississippi, how did the organizing principles of SNCC and SCLC differ? And how does that tie into what we're seeing today? Well, I, I think uh, clearly the Black Lives Matter uh, movement uh, it has learned a lot from what happened in the 60s with uh, SNCC and with SCLC. Uh, 
I was a part of, of SNCC and a part of the NAACP as a, as a college student in Mississippi in the 1960s, uh, primarily at, uh, at Ross College in North Mississippi. Um, SNCC, uh, I guess the term today would be, uh, SNCC really was an organizing group, was an organizing body. SNCC, uh, the SNCC field secretaries, to use the term today, would, would be embedded. They embedded themselves in the communities throughout Mississippi and worked, uh, of course, in Mississippi and Arkansas and Georgia and Alabama. I mean, they lived in the community. Uh, they were a part of the community in Mississippi and part of the community in the other places where SNCC had projects. Uh, SCLC was, uh, was really uh, a mobilizing organization because uh, Martin Luther King was, was a circuit rider. Uh, Dr. King uh, went throughout the American South and some in the North uh, speaking and organizing and agitating, but primarily uh, FCLC didn't spend the time in the communities that, that the SNCC uh, field secretary uh, spent. They didn't get to know the people as well. So uh, SNCC provided the basic foundation, the organizing principles of SNCC was to work with the local community. And what SNCC was able to do in Mississippi is when SNCC came to town back in 1961, uh, they really worked closely with the people that Mecca Evers had worked with in the NAACP. Uh, you may recall that back in 1954, Mecca Evers was the first full-time field secretary for the NAACP in Mississippi. And Evers had developed the chapters, the NAACP chapters throughout Mississippi and Bergen communities. And when SNCC came to town in 1961, SNCC took advantage of the organizing effort that had been done by Medgar Evers to work with the people in the local community. So uh, whether it was protest or whether it was working primarily on voter registration, uh, SNCC was able to use the individuals that were already organized in these small towns in Mississippi uh, and work with them in order to change the circumstances in the state. So the Fannie Lou Hamers of the world, the Annie Devines of the world, the Victoria Jackson Graves of the world, the Amzie Moores of the world, the E.W. Steptoes of the world, the C.C. Bryant's of the world, all those individuals were already in Mississippi and SNCC was able to successfully work with those individuals. But FCLC, on the, on the other hand, had a presence in Mississippi, but not a very large presence, and did not have the individuals embedded in the different communities as SNCC. So uh, SNCC worked with the Council of Federated Organization, which was called COFO. And COFO consisted of the NAACP, SNCC, CORE, and SCLC. And of course, CORE was led in Mississippi primarily by Dave Dennis. And, and CORE was lodged in what was then the old uh, 4th Congressional District in Mississippi. But uh, clearly CORE and SNCC worked much more closely together than the other organization. But my point is basically this, is that SNCC 
was organizing in the communities and SCLC throughout the South was mobilizing people because again, Dr. King and, and the people working with Dr. King were primarily circuit riders. Thank you, Dr. McLemore. I wanna move right to Dr. Chachua. And one thing I'd like to inject into the conversation, I think SNCC plays a large role, particularly Dr. Chachua, when we look at this shift from civil rights to black power. And we look at even in 1966, when John Lewis is removed as president and Stokely Carmichael becomes the president, that's a profound moment in the idea of students, the idea of the social movement of the 60s, and particularly how we get to black power. So if you could give us your overview, particularly about the 50s to the present. Let me say this, uh, I don't wanna be remiss in uh, paying homage to uh, Dr. McLemore. Uh, you probably don't remember me, but as a student at uh, Tougaloo, I had the opportunity to uh, be around you for, for, for a bit. And so uh, I just wanna say thank you, uh, brother, for all that you've uh, done and all that you've taught. You're welcome, thank you. Now, I, um, I'm a child of black power. So I grew up in the wake of the call for black power and that influenced and shaped my life since, but particularly my organizational involvements. And what I would argue is that, well, there are a group of scholars who attempt to collapse black power and civil rights and attempt to erase black power from history. And this is one of the profound things that we have to understand about the young people at this moment. They have no understanding of black power and they tend to erase it because they only talk about the civil rights movement. So one of the things we have to do is reinscribe black power. And you can begin to see, uh, can you hear me? Okay. We have to reinscribe black power. And so what black power does, right, is that it shifts from a movement that was largely strategically based on trying to gain access to the fundamental constitutional rights, but also to integrate African-Americans into U.S. white dominated institutions. Black Power proposed a different strategy and its strategy was to build autonomous, independent black institutions, right? That were rooted in African-American culture. So it raises the question of autonomy Right, so when you talk about community control, which is probably the most central demand of black power, building off of Malcolm, that's something very different than what the civil writers uh, were, were calling for. So what black power does, and it's a generational demand, like many of our movements do in fact reflect a rising generation. So it's, 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 it's a rising generation that's that's dealing with the circumstances in which they find themselves. So black power becomes a call for mainly four things, right? Community control, that is to say, self-determination, self-defense. Malcolm had talked about it, right? But Robert Williams had put it into practice in Monroe, North Carolina, in the wake 
as the civil rights movement was coming to its closure, the Deacons for Defense emerge, and in some ways they become a bridge from civil rights to black power. Right? But you also have a demand for the reevaluation of blackness in a very fundamental way, because you know, even as we get into the 1960s, the notion of black is a um, it, 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 it's seen as, 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 as a negative. It's a pejorative to be called black. And so what happens in the 60s in William Cross, the psychologist William Cross with his theory of negrescence, uh, black identity development, right? Cross demonstrates that there is what he calls a Negro to black conversion process. And that process, uh, the, the use of metaphor, right? Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael used to say that inside every Negro was a black man, and I'm gonna say and woman, cause he didn't, right? <laughs> Inside every Negro, there's a black man or woman struggling to get out. Right? So his argument was that it was necessary to become black and black meant to, as I said before, it, 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 as a state of consciousness, we're talking about self-determination, community control, building our own institutions. We're talking about self-defense. We're talking about a reevaluation of blackness, right? And so once we begin to think about it in those terms, we see the ways in which, while it grows out of the womb of the civil rights movement, it also comes from uh, the black nationalist movement. And so it has those aspects, that emphasis on uh, autonomy and self-determination. So the black power becomes something totally different. And I would argue that if we go back and read the history correctly, what we will find is that most of the things that we find fundamental to the transformation of the, during the 60s and 70s have more to do with black power than they do with civil rights in this sense, right? Uh, the project we're engaged in right now, black studies, comes from the black power side, right? When Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, and Charles B. Hamilton argue in the book, Black Power, that we want to where we are a majority to control. And where we are a minority, we want proportional representation. That is a fundamental break with liberalism. That's a move beyond liberalism, right? And it's a nationalist move, a proto-nationalist move. And so Black Power brings that kind of peace to it. And so when I say that we have to begin to build from the last high point of struggle, right? That means that we build from black power because that was our last high tide. And so it's those strategies, it's those ideologies that we have to begin to build from. And so that's the question that I pose is that we're dealing with in terms of black lives matter it's, 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 it's not a movement, it's too, uh, I, I think the words that uh, my brother Dave Stovall used was nascent. It's, uh, it's, it's embryonic. We don't know whether it will be realized or whether it will be aborted or stillborn, right? We're still waiting to see. But until it grapples with black power and the nationalist element, um, I, don't, I don't think it will will achieve those heights. Thank you for that thought. Moving to you, Dave, um, as far as we look at, let's build directly off what Dr. McLemore and Dr. Chajua have said, as far as the layered nuances, particularly of black power. And 
What can the organizers from the current protest movement learn from these historical uprisings that we have heard from Dr. McLemore and Dr. Chachua? And how does that come into practice in a realistic sense? And how do we go from this embryonic stage to move into a more mature thought? Definitely, thank you for that question. And I also too want to thank Dr. McLemore for your work and struggle because you are living testament to the work that folks like ourselves are trying to do. Um, I think there are two things that are happening here and I agree wholeheartedly with Dr. Chajua in terms of young people are seeing that they have to be students of history now, right? Because when they're reminded that this is not new, then they're forced to think about okay, because this is not new, our contexts are similar and our work is similar, what has changed, right? And I think what I'm seeing from young folks in terms of pulling this in, and this was, uh, this was a rift in terms of black power, in terms of asking a broader question of women and women identified folks, right? Mm -hmm. So this, this piece around bringing this into the conversation, right? So now, we're not, it's not this admonishing or cancel culture, but it's really talking about what does it mean to incorporate right, right. Did we lose Dave? Yeah, he's frozen. He is frozen. Okay, we will hope that he comes back and we'll continue to move. And I want all of the participants to feel free to ask your questions, no matter how difficult you think they are. Everyone on the panel is prepared to answer those difficult questions. In the Q&A, the panel will see them. In the chat room, we will all see them. So feel free to look at it in that nature and, and give us your thoughts. Let us know that you are a part of this conversation. So we lost Dave. So, when we continue to think about Dr. McLemore, when we think about how some of these things that Dr. Chachua has discussed, and I've heard the name Malcolm X and his thoughts. And the question that I wanna to pose to you is, Malcolm X is credited largely with evolving the idea of black power. And that came to be associated with SNCC, as you mentioned earlier. What were his ideas about black nationalism? And again, we want those folks to make sure that they participate and give us your thoughts. And one more thing I gotta say, as much as we discuss Brother Malcolm and his brilliance, Brother Malcolm was only a student. Let's make sure that we pay attention to be wise, we pay more attention to the teacher than we do the student. Go ahead, Dr. McLemore. Well, uh, in, in my judgment, obviously, uh, Malcolm uh, had that uh, background in, in that, the, the years he spent in prison uh, and his introduction to uh, Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam uh, clearly provided the kind of backdrop uh, that gave him the understanding, uh, gave him the appreciation for uh, the role of uh, people of African descent uh, in the country and gave him some idea of the possibilities. But uh, I'm thinking, uh, Fred, that the relationship between 
uh, Malcolm, the, 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 the urban person, the, the person who uh, grew up and lived in the cities and, and, the, and the role that Stokely Carmichael played in SNCC and the way that Malcolm influenced uh, Stokely and Stokely brought mm -hmm. that thinking uh, to, you know, to the organization. And, and we often uh, forget, uh, of course, we can fast forward to, to the marriage march against fear in 1966, the march from, from Memphis to, to Jackson. And when uh, Stokely Carmichael and Willie Ricks Jr., uh, I guess Ricks actually was the first person who shouted the term Black Power in Greenwood, and Stokely uh, took it up. But that was, that was the turning point, obviously, as, as had been, has been pointed out in the role of uh, SNCC and the, in the, in the posture that SNCC took moving forward in, in 1966. And what to me, uh, quite frankly, uh, was intriguing. And, and I, I, I don't think we have, maybe we have spent a lot of time uh, thinking and reflecting on this, but, but the, but the, but the dialogue or the arguments between Martin Luther King, primarily in Stokely Carmichael from, from Memphis to Jackson. And of course, Floyd McKissick was a part of that discussion too. Uh, mm -hmm. But that, that philosophical discussion uh, between uh, Dr. King, a strong advocate of nonviolence and Stokely Carmichael, a strong advocate of black power and self-defense, uh, that, provided a history lesson for so many of us. And I, I think, you know, the people who are like yourselves and the people who are leading Black Studies programs across the country, I mean, I think the young people that we teach today or the young people who are marching in the streets can learn a lot, I think, from that argument, from that dialogue between Carmichael and, and Martin Luther King. Uh, that is really, uh, a, a lesson in, in basic philosophies that have sort of captured uh, the imagination of, of this country. And uh, so you all know much more about what the young people who are marching today know and don't know and what they have not read and what they need to read. But I, I think it's clearly an opportunity for us uh, who are in the academy and who are in the streets and who have this background to provide that kind of knowledge for them or to lead them in that direction. Uh, because I'm optimistic uh, that this embryonic uh, movement that we're involved in now is going to mature. And I think out of that maturity, uh, we're gonna have people providing leadership in a variety of communities across the country and around the world. So, uh, I just personally think, although I was involved in the movement in the 1960s, but quite frankly, whether, it, whether the caption is black power, or whether it's civil rights, or whether it's humanism, uh, there is something going on in places beyond the shores of this country that mm -hmm. I think will have a lasting impact on what we do as we move forward as a country and as we move forward on the globe. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, clearly there is a lot of teaching and a lot of examples that can be used. But again, I, I think the discussions early on, I mean, even, even thinking about the Harlem Renaissance, I mean, just think mm -hmm. about Claude McKay. Uh, mm -hmm. Clearly, 
there are lessons there that we can pass on uh, to these young people. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. McLemore. Oh, we have a question and I'll direct it towards Dr. Chanchua um, from Janice. And Janice wants to return us to discussing the current black power, the current movement and the black power movement and the role of women and how women are becoming um, far more engaged in multiple ways than the black power movement. Um, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a wonderful question. And it's Absolutely. the kind of probing question that needs to be asked. And, uh, you know, I want to thank David uh, for interjecting the question of gender into the discussion. But I think that there's been a complete misreading of black power. Just like there's been a complete misreading of Malcolm. And so when we think about black power, what we're given is an image of men. So let me cut through that in this way. Whenever, if you were to close your eyes and think about, if I said the Black Panther Party, what images would come into your mind? The images that would most likely come into your mind might be UEP Newton in the wicker chair with a spear in one hand and a shotgun in another, but it would largely be black men in black jackets and berets marching, right? But the Panther Party was overwhelmingly female, women. By 1969, the Panthers were two thirds women. So now what role did those women play right, in the struggle? There's a good book out by Ashley Farmer called Reframing Black Power. And what she does is she interjects black women. One of the major theorists of this period coming out of SNCC and, uh, is, is Frances Bill. She writes the, the article on double jeopardy that begins to lay out what some would call an intersectional approach, right? Um, that comes out of black power. What happens is that there's a tendency to push women to the margins in terms of the role that they actually play. Now, in the early days of black power, it, it, uh, the, the leadership is male, but women begin to challenge that very early on. And you see the emergence of uh, either all women organizations, or you see women begin to rise to leadership. And if you get down on the ground, you got to say, well, what about Ella Baker in the formation of SNCC? What about Ella Baker and her ideas in the transition to black power? What about Fannie Lou Hamer and Freedom Farms, right? And so once we begin to do that, what we have to do is go back and excavate and raise up the women who were involved and begin to interrogate their ideas and see how their ideas contributed to shaping the movement. Now, there's no doubt, no doubt that uh, there was a strong sexist element in Black power, right? But there's something that Kathleen Cleaver said that I think is, is profound and truthful. Cleaver, in responding to the multitude of questions, she said, wherever I spoke, people would, the first question they would ask me is about the misogyny in the Black Panther Party. And what Kathleen Cleaver said was, the misogyny came into the Black Panther Party from American society. That we were a part of this society. 
And then she said, but if you look at the Panther Party, when there were questions of misogyny and abuse of women, we took it up and dealt with it, right? That we had a policy denouncing sexism and pushing a pro-feminist position. And she asked, did, LC, did SCLC have such a policy? Did the NAACP? Did the Nation of Islam? Did the US Congress? Did the American government? No. So what we're gonna find when we actually dig in is that most black power organizations, because the women were fighting for their equality and right to lead in those organizations, that they transformed on, on these questions much sooner than the civil rights organizations and white society in general, whether we're talking about the Lions, the Rotary, or the US Congress. So we gotta be clear about that. But I wanna pick up something you said, Fred, about Malcolm X and uh, let's not forget about the teacher. I, I would assume that, uh, you know, one of the things I learned from my great teachers is that you expect and desire that your students will surpass you. Malcolm surpassed Elijah Muhammad and is much more critical and important to the future of black folks than Elijah Muhammad. I don't want to, you know, just beat that because what it has to do with circumstances and one's adaptability to circumstance. So when we think about Malcolm, we got to think about three periods of his life as an organizer, right? There's the Nation of Islam years from the moment he gets out of prison until he's uh, expelled, right? Um, <clears throat> and that's a particular type of Malcolm. It's a very rudimentary uh, black nationalist Malcolm with strong anti-white tendencies, right? As per the theology of the Nation of Islam. Then there's a transition, 63 to 64. Malcolm is in transition. He's trying to figure out who he is and where he wants to go, right? As Malcolm moves into his last year, his last year and a half, we see two things. We see that the international aspect, the Pan-Africanist aspect, the third worldist aspect that was always there gets ratcheted up, right? It becomes much more central to where Malcolm and how Malcolm wants to move. But then Malcolm's travels throughout Africa. And again, people focus on Malcolm in the Middle East. Well, that, that, that's important, but it's not the definitive of what Malcolm becomes. It's Malcolm's engagement in Africa. It's when he's in Kenya and he's on that ship after he gets uh, food poisoning, he's on that ship. And he's on that ship with the leaders of the ANC, the PAC, right? Um, the Mozambique, the MPLA, and, and, and the, the liberation movements throughout Africa. And, 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 and the, the, those battling Portuguese colonialism and the, those battling against, uh, you know, in South Africa and in uh, Southwest Africa, that's now Namibia. So he's on there with, with revolutionaries with the time he spends in Ghana with Kwame Nkrumah. And so when Malcolm returns from Africa, he's pushing a very different argument. He now makes two fundamental transformations. The first is that he argues uh, for the equality of women, right? And we got to note that when Malcolm went to Africa, 
the OAAU was set up so that each, uh, that half of the chairs of, a, of OAU uh, committees were women, right? Half of them were women. Malcolm also begins to talk about socialism. He begins to be much more explicit in his critique of capitalism from the standpoint of political economy and not just culture. So this is a transformed Malcolm and Malcolm lays a basis from which those who come into black power also move so that the most radical wing of black power takes off from Malcolm, the Panthers, Kwame Turi, particularly uh, Jamil Alamine, H. Rap Brown, right? James Foreman, Francis Beale, uh, the National Black Feminist Art. These people come to understand that we have to condemn capitalism as a system because it is capitalism, right? As Karl Marx says, capitalism is born through the African slave trade, through the uh, genocide against the uh, indigenous peoples in the Americas and international trade with Asians. That is the birth of capitalism. So it's born in racism. That's why Cedric Robinson uses the term racial capitalism. So we got to keep that front and center. And I apologize for talking a, a little bit long, but I think it was necessary to make those points that I, that I felt needed to be put on the table. Thank you. I think there are many ways to discuss Malcolm's rise and trajectory. And Dr. Chajua has always been very stalwart in the way that he puts it. And it has a nationalistic feel because it's generational and it ties directly to his training. So I appreciate the thoughts. And in all, I do believe that Malcolm was a ever evolving world leader at the time of his death. My thought in all of that is to never take away or lessen the idea that took him from Satan to where Malcolm was when he transpired. Because when we think about Brother Malcolm, and let's think about our employment or those things that make what our employment are. Brother Malcolm wouldn't have passed the background check. So most times because of his background, folks wouldn't have taken him seriously. So there was this part of Malcolm that was transformed, put in front of the world. And I agree, absolutely. He became so much greater as a person as he moved along. So Dr. Tattoo, I thank you for your critique of Brother Malcolm. And I remember when you critiqued him and how his book became the number one stolen book from the United States libraries at one time. New York then, City libraries. New, New York, York City, City libraries. And then the idea of how rap music tied into Malcolm that was teaching folks about Malcolm. So I think that he is still in his position now. His positionality is still as a teacher. We got a bunch of questions, you all. And I don't know how much time we have, but we're going to try to get this next one in, if that's all right. You back, Dave? Yep, my apologies. It must have been the NSF. I, uh, in terms of uh, my, inter my interruption, my apologies. Well, I have a question for you. It comes yes, from Dr. Julian Williams, and we are thankful that he's with us. And thank you so much, Dr. Williams. He said, what role do we believe that the black scholar, particularly those that are university professors, should play in these times to support student protests and struggle? I think Go ahead, Dave. I think two things. Thanks so much for that question. I think the first thing is to serve as documentarians of the movement. The second thing is to be responsible, responsive and responsible to the efforts of young people by not dictating them or 
uh, recording them without the permission of those young folks. And I think third, to actually engage our scholarship with those groups of young people who are in the streets demanding justice. And I think the, the fourth thing is to intentionally interrupt the colonial pro white supremacist project of traditional academic research by doing that work in, the, in collaboration and in concert with the call from Black Power to engage Black studies as community studies. It begins in community space, and that is the work that propels us forward. So I think at this moment is to be responsible and responsive to those movements. So it's not just about sitting back and serving as a documentarian. We want to do that, but we also want to be in community with folks demanding justice and building those new things. So uh, if we can move to you, Dr. McLemore, how about that question? What role does the formally educated professor or the professoriate as a paradigm have in this current movement? Well, I, I agree with uh, what has been said, uh, especially by Brother Stovall there. Uh, the idea of community, the idea of working closely with the community. And let me uh, mention something called institutional building. Uh, I think uh, we have an opportunity now to, to capture uh, some of the positive things that's going on, but also it gives us an opportunity to, to strengthen institutions, to build institutions, where we can pass on the word, where we can uh, teach the word, where we can actively engage uh, with young people, uh, clearly not trying to dictate where they ought to go and try to provide, you know, directions in that sense. But uh, one of the, the avenues that we really have not taken advantage of over time is, is that how can we leave our mark beyond the short period of time that we're on this earth. I mean, how can we capture those things that are important uh, for, our, for, for our community, for our people, and, and, and use uh, those markers to improve generation after generation. So uh, not only talking about leaving generational wealth, but generational knowledge through the institutions that we build and and how can we share that with succeeding generations so i think it's an opportunity for clearly for some organizational work to be done but also to try to build institutions that would have an impact beyond these years thank you uh dr mclemore and posing it to you dr chachua um i was very blessed to have been on the campus with Dr. Chachua for four years. And uh, I, I learned a lot from his movements. And I wanna give you a paradigm to kind of put this in Dr. Chachua as, I think this is reflective of some of the things that you think are important and the way that you move. Uh, they say a, a younger man for war, but an older man for counsel. So when we look at the professoriate and the passing of the torch and how this passing of a torch transcends generations. So we have those from many generations, just like with our panel. So how do you see that as a backdrop to answering the question? Good, I like the way you, you, you pose that. Um, 
I want to be supportive of the main thrust of uh, the, the argument, but I want to pose some challenges to aspects of it. So on the one hand, for me, um, we have inherited through the black intellectual tradition, a very clear uh, path that we should walk in terms of uh, the role of, 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 a, of a scholar. And that's what uh, Robert Christman, one of my mentors, uh, one of the founders of the Black Scholar, argued was uh, the Black Scholar activist model. And that is to say that we cannot accept that it is enough for a Black scholar to simply produce useful scholarship for community activists, right? To only produce very powerful analyses of the role, position, and status in place of the Black community, they must also, also be engaged as an activist. So I take that as fundamental, the Black scholar activist model. Um, I see myself at this point as one, a mentor, but I also believe that I have to be engaged. See, one of the things that gets missed is that this emphasis on youth has a certain correctness because I've spoken to it, right? But it also mystifies and misses a large aspect of the struggle. Black social movements have always been intergenerational. Now, there's been a generational component that rises up and creates new organizations, and we have to look at the fate of those new organizations and what they were able to accomplish when they're just generational. See, one of the things that gets missed, the millennials are now the largest cohort of African-American people, but the second largest cohort is baby boomers. Baby boomers control, black baby boomers control about 75, 80% of black wealth. So when you start talking about building movements, building institutions, who's gonna finance? It's gonna be baby boomers. So what we have to talk about is how we make these generations work intergenerationally. Now I'm a member of an organization called Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. We are the only organization, national organization, in which we have people in their late 70s and 80s, and we got people in their teenage years. And we see that as absolutely essential. I think the word you used was uh, wisdom of the elders and energy from the youth, that we have to begin to build that so that black social movements must look like the black community. That is to say that they must have people across generations. It must be men and women. It must be people of all sexual orientations. And, and that's what we're trying to build. So that's what we want the movement to look like, to look like the community. So we're not simply talking about a young people's movement. If there is a deficiency and there is a serious deficiencies in, in, in one, I don't believe it's a movement. I, I believe that it's a, a struggle. People are, are, are struggling, but it hasn't congealed to a movement. It's what Amilcar Cabal said that uh, he, he called it ideological deficiency. And what we lack amongst the, the uprising at this moment is ideological clarity, right? They're not clear. They're not revolutionary nationalists. They're not opposed to capitalism. And so reform is still on the agenda for most of these folk. Now it's gonna be a more radical reform. It's gonna be a reform that people 
did not necessarily imagine five, six years ago, but it's still going to be maintaining the existence of racist, capitalist, imperialist America. We have to begin to imagine the end of capitalism and the end of racial oppression. And that opens up the avenue for black self-determination. It opens up the avenue for us to talk about a, a kind of socialism that is far beyond the social democracy of Bernie Sanders, you see. And I think that that is the thrust of the African-American movement. And that's the trajectory, that's the most radical element. And what we need to do is nurture the most radical current. That's the seed that we need to sprout. Thank you for that thought. Uh, we got another question. Um, this is from Marcus and Marcus says, the great Dr. John Henry Clark said, he sees himself as an African in America, an example, not as black. He said, quote, African, end quote, gives black people land, history, and culture. And he wanted to pose this to anyone of our panelists. I think that Dr. John Henry Clark is one of our greatest. And without question, when we think about his thoughts and his scholarship, I think that he makes a great point. Well, being African and American has already been defined by those who are not Africans or African Americans, if that term exists. So I agree that without land, without the idea of who we are with our history, and the idea of creating our own culture in this oppressive situation, then I think that when we start talking about what he means, then we have a different conversation. So I wanna go back to the question. He says that Dr. John Henry Clark sees himself as African in America. How do you all answer that? Dr. McLemore? You know, I, I, I agree clearly uh, with, with, with that sentiment. I mean, uh, I mean that's an accurate descri description of, of who we are and uh, it, it deals with clearly the method of how we, how we got here, Africans in America how we uh, came through the Middle Passage and how we got here. Uh, but let me take uh, what is going to probably be described as a fairly conservative position on this. Uh, clearly, we have, we have these different strands of thought. I mean, uh, you know, we, we talked earlier about Malcolm and, and Black power and Black nationalism, but, uh, you, know, we can, you know, we can go back clearly much further uh, and, and look at the Black nationalist movement. I mean, the strains of Black nationalism, which uh, clearly reflected in, a, in, in so many ways, uh, Black power, I mean, community development, uh, you know, the idea of Black people controlling the land and the forces, you know, where they are, especially when they have, you know, when they have the numbers. Let me just approach it this way. Uh, we have clearly a, a strong sentiment of black people who clearly agree with uh, John Henry Clark. Uh, we have uh, a strong segment of people who would argue just the opposite. And, you know, if we look holistically at the place of black folk in America or Africans in America, and, and we look at 
at the at the forces that that shape us. I mean, the framework that has been provided in a very real sense and in our identity. I mean, clearly, the things that we identify with, the manner in which we identify, you know, with these things, whether they're material things or philosophically, uh, you know, in a very real sense, uh, Black Power, the Harlem Renaissance brought to fore this whole idea of Black Pride. Uh, it, it, it had us and made us re-examine uh, our history. You know, I I happened to be in graduate school in the in the in the in the, in the late '60s and early '70s uh, when uh, we rediscovered uh, Du Bois and when we discovered when we discovered uh, Locke. I mean, just so many things happened during that period of time. My basic point is this: is that this country, America, is is so bad. And there are so many opportunities that people can take advantage of. And there are so many lifestyles that you can pursue. And I'm thinking, let's think about the role that Madam C.J. Walker played in Black Beauty for Women. Mm -hmm. And think about the models that we use in terms of Black Beauty and White Beauty in America. And if we look at places beyond the shores of this country and look at the idea of black beauty in Africa or black beauty in Europe and look at the influence of this country. And if we think about uh, clearly looking at the culture, looking at, at the music that we really haven't talked a lot about, but just think about from, from, the, from, from the spirituals and the gospels to the music and the civil rights move, movement, through rap music today, you know, just think about it in terms of how it's an integral part of America. And, uh, you know, the, the, the expression that Flip Wilson used to use all the time, just, just imagine America without Ray Charles, right? So uh, how was Ray Charles shaped and how was he shaped? And obviously, to a great extent, he was shaped by the black church where he grew up in Florida. I mean, so you can you look at look at all of the great musicians that came out of the American South, whether it's the blues or the gospel or what have you. But I'm but I'm looking at the overall the overall thrust of what is America and how America is able to shape our thinking and our actions and 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 the different uh, different waves that have happened that that have occurred over time. I mean. Uh, the, I think we would all agree that Du Bois is probably one of a, this country's greatest uh, scholars, black or white. And, and, and if we look at the life of Du Bois, just as you were talking about the life of Malcolm, I mean, there is a period in Du Bois that you can identify with if you wish. There was a period in Malcolm's life that you could identify uh, if you wish. But also think about uh, the shaping of these giants within the context of the American culture. So uh, clearly uh, uh, Dr. Clark was right, but also there are clearly other, other avenues, other strains of thinking that's a part of, you know, what we can call the United States of America. 
Thank you, Dr. You know, McLemore. Please, Dr. Chacho. Um, I, I think that John Henry Clark creates a conundrum for us so that that statement, on the one hand, what he does is that there's elements of that that's quite deep and there's elements that are shallow. There's elements that are quite broad and there's elements that are quite narrow. To say that we are an African people is a true statement. But then one has to say that there are African people who go by the name Nigerian, who go by the name uh, Ovambundu. There are Afri uh, African people in Jamaica, African people all over, right? And so what he captures is the commonality that we come from Africa, that we've maintained in various ways African culture, but what he misses is the particularity. I'm not a, Niger I'm not a Nigerian of either ethnic group. I'm not a Jamaican. Um, I have a relationship to those places, but to be African-American or what we call new African, right? is to be a particular national group. And we can't just lump all people of African descent together because the historical experiences, right, the racial formations in which we reside and have struggled and created culture in particular ways and in a particular essence and nature of who we are, are quite different. The United States and struggling in the United States and struggling to create a culture that's creolized from hundreds of African ethnicities, right? With influences from the indigenous people here and with influences from the Euro-American population, particularly those of uh, British descent. It means that we fundamentally created a different culture. Now the base is clearly African and the dynamic element is clearly African, right? But it is different than what you find in amongst Afro-Brazilians. The circumstances in which we live. We are an African people that came out of an environment in which we were a minority. In Haiti, they were a majority. In across the Caribbean, they were a majority. So there's different formations and how those things impact. Now, the notion of being tied to the land, see, when John Henry Clark made that statement, that's when people were using the term Negro. Negro cuts us off from land. But the notion of new African, the notion of African-American doesn't cut us off from land. But here's what we got to understand. Um, the possibility that we are going to move 45 million people to Africa is pretty nil or none. But we have been in this place called the United States since before its inception, and we have a right to land. Land was ceded to us coming out of the Civil War, right? The whole notion of, of Sherman's special field order number 15 that said that all of the land from South Carolina to St. Augustine, excuse me, from Charleston, South Carolina to St. Augustine, Florida, the islands that are seated for 30 miles inward would be given to the freed people in perpetuity right? We have a right to demand land here in the United States as part of reparations. In fact, it should be the centerpiece of reparations is ceding land. 
So I don't believe, while I'm a Pan-Africanist and have a commitment to Africa, I believe that I am a particular African nationality. I am an African-American or a new African in the same way that uh, Yoruba and Twi became Nigerians. And if we miss the particularity of the African-American, new African national experience, then there's no way to talk about the destiny of our particular people because we do have a particular historical experience and there are particular transformations that we seek and we have to keep that front and foremost. So while I agree with John Henry Clark that we are an African people, I don't believe that we are like completely like and have an experience that's completely like that of any of the 54 nations on the African continent and the numerous black nations in the Caribbean. And we know this to be true because when African immigrants come to the United States, when Caribbean immigrants come to the United States, the differences are magnified. Now, again, I agree with Shekana Gia that underneath those is a substratum of commonality, but it is also a difference in expression. So we have to tend to the African-American, the new African nationality, the new African national question, right? We are colonized people like other Africans have been colonized, but we got to tend to our particular nationality. All right. We have another question, and I think this is going to just about do it. So we'll have everybody give their thoughts on this. This is from Dr. Khaled Ella King and the Black History 101 Mobile Museum, and thank you for your question, um, Brother Khaled. Um, says, Ibram Kendi's work on anti-racist is popular right now and suggests that Black people can be racist. Most people have argued for decades that Black people cannot be racist because of the power dynamic. My question is, can black people be racist? And I think Go ahead, Dave. there's a, a quick answer to that. And this is where I depart from Brother Kennedy and who's a good brother and very, you know, stand from the beginning is an excellent book. The second piece I got some issues with because as black people, we can be xenophobic, we can be prejudicial, but we do not have the structures and powers to enact racism slash white supremacy on other black people. Right, and I think this becomes important. So when we actually engage in this, and so, so to answer to the brother's question, absolutely not. Now, we can engage in spaces that may bring harm to others. And I think that's important. So if we talk about prejudice, if we talk about xenophobia, if we talk about jingoism, we can all engage in that. But that is deeply impacted to what it, by what extent that we accept white supremacy. Right. So now if we reject white supremacy, now we see how we may participate in those things that may be prejudicial, jingoistic, xenophobic. But again, the question of racism slash white supremacy is power. And where do we have power to actually enact those things that would actually say, would, would declare that to be racist. And I think that is the problem, right? So when we talk about, we need to understand how white supremacy lives inside of us. We need to understand how we need to combat it. But this idea of black people, the victims of something now being the perpetrators of it, I don't necessarily jive with and I disagree. Thank you. Um, Dr. McDermott? Uh I don't, uh, 
Fred, I really don't have much to add to, to what Brother Stovall said because I agree with him completely. Well, what, what I want to just say, since this is the last question, uh, I just wanted to uh, say a few words about, about women and the role of women, uh, whether it's black power or civil rights, and you can, you can you know, take it any way you wish. But, you know, clearly uh, the Mississippi experience is something uh, that brought black women to the fore and were some of the chief organizers in what was the civil rights movement and leading into black power and the role that the women and SNCC played. Uh, you know, clearly uh, your audience haven't heard of, of Annie Devine or Victoria Jackson Gray or uh, 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 W. Uh, Hudson, uh, you know, or, or Winston Hudson, but these women played a fundamental role, Annie Devine, these women played a fundamental role in, in, in the movement. Ruby Doris Smith Robertson and SNCC, uh, all the other women and SNCC, uh, Jean Willis Smith uh, that you haven't heard of, I mean, provided uh, organizing skills and talent. And then just look at urban, uh, just look at urban America today. Just look at mm -hmm. the black mayors. I mean, the, uh, uh, the mayor of, uh, of Atlanta, who is the niece of Ruby Doris Smith Robertson, uh, the mayor of Chicago. I mean, black women are playing these pivotal roles and just look at the strong black women that's in the U.S. Congress. So uh, they, they aren't all revolutionaries and, and they aren't all that, but just think about uh, 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 any of you, and I'm not sure about backgrounds of all of you, but you know, if you grew up in the, in the black church, you know that women provided the leadership in the black church going way back. And if you go to any kind of church now, occasionally, you're going to see black women. So I, I just think uh, black women have provided and still provide the foundation. And hopefully, I mean, the black, the, the black uh, Live Matters movement, uh, the, the, the young women that uh, were the co-founders of it, the leadership that they're providing, I, I, I think we would not be where we are right now if we didn't have black women doing what they're doing. But even in voting in the Democratic Party, uh, the most consistent, largest vote come from African-American women. So uh, thank God we have black women. That, that's all I'm saying, brother. That's it. Dr. Chachu? Yeah, I, I want to echo Brother McLemore. Only people who have never been in meetings with black women would ever pose the idea that uh, men ran over them. I mean, it's an absurd notion if you've never been around black women. Now, this, this, this other question that you pose in terms of uh, Brother Ibram Kennedy, I, 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 I know the brother and he, he's well-meaning, but I agree with, uh, with, with, with David, Dr. Stowell, that um, one of the reasons that this work is popular is because he makes concessions. And he makes the same kind of concessions in stamped, right? It's not just uh, the anti-racist piece. It's also in stamped. And, and, and the concession is this. It's a simplistic understanding of racism. We understand that racism operates on three levels, right? There is the structural uh, that operates through, these, through institutions. There is the cultural and there's the individual. But Brother Kendi, while talking about structures, He's actually emphasizing the individual because black folk, we control no structure. This is white America's racist capitalist system. We don't control structures and institutions that affect the lives of white people that shape, right, the policies 
through which they have to live and negotiate their livelihoods. We don't, we, we, we deeply influence the culture, but we influence the culture not in the way of uh, shaping the intellectual ideas, not in the way of shaping the, the core values of the institutions, right? Those things are shaped by the European, uh, America is the evil place it is because of Europeans shaping the cultural piece of it. And what I mean by that is the individual, the hyper-individualism in this society, the disdain for working people, those are not things that come out of African-American culture. And so what Kendi is focused on is on the individual level. Now, at the individual level, are there black people who have uh, hatred and, and, and prejudice and disdain for white people? There are some. Uh, I mean, of course there's some. But if you look at the role we have played in this society, the movements that we have led from the abolition of slavery, which also brought us the women's liberation movement, it comes out of the abolition movement, right? From the civil rights movement, what comes out of the civil rights movement and the black power movement is gay rights, is the, the Latinx movement. I'm not saying they weren't moving before, but they certainly take a lot from So my point is this, the role that black people have played in this society has been a push for greater democracy, a push for greater respect of the cultures of different people, the notion of multicultural diversity. So that, that's been our thrust. Our thrust has not been a narrow uh, pushing along lines that, uh, that reify race. That's not been what we've done. So when Professor Kendi poses that we function similar to the way white Americans have functioned, um, that's, that's deeply flawed in terms of the empirical evidence. That's not what we've represented. We've represented the best of what this society could be from the, from the standpoint of in terms of bringing a democratic culture, whether it comes in the form of the blues, from the standpoint of pushing a concern for everyone. There's not one black social movement that's simply tried to improve the lives of black people we've always added in other folk. So I find it to be a kind of blasphemy against, uh, against my people. Uh, yeah, so I reject it totally. I'm so glad that we had this particular conversation. And I want to be very clear that this is ultimately what the Black Centers Black Studies Center at the University of Wyoming intends to inject into the daily rhythms of the University of Wyoming. These conversations and also engagement are of upper importance as we move forward as a community. And I'm under no illusion that all of a sudden the death of one black man on TV, including modernity, that we actually got to see his death, will change the pillars of white supremacy as we know them. But I do believe when there is going or there's a growing war, then out come the warriors. And I do believe that as we become very critical about these next months and these next few years, this will be a watershed moment. But what will happen after that? First of all, I want to thank my brother Dave Stovall, 
never says no, always there. I can't thank you enough. And I'd like to thank my mentor, Dr. Sundiata Chachua, who has helped me in so many ways, particularly about being a scholar and interpreting the accurate information. And as I move forward, I have to thank Dr. Leslie McLemore, who I met years ago with the National Endowment of the Humanities and has never said no since that day. I want to express how grateful we are to WIRE, and I'm looking forward to our partnerships in the future. And I want to tell everybody who participated and those who had a chance to listen in on the conversation that please believe that we will engage in more of these conversations. And I go back to what I said earlier, and engagement outside of conversation as we move forward. So this is the first way that we look at University of Wyoming's Black Study Center. So I think everybody involved uh, can't thank you enough. And again, we are here. Thank all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Truly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate Thank you. all of your work, Fred. Thank you. Yeah. And I love Thank being you. on the panel with you brothers. Thank you. Same it, here. It's, it's always important to hear Dr. McLemore. And out of all of the panel, Dr. McLemore is the only one that traveled to Wyoming thus far. Nice. Dr. <laughs> Dr. McLemore was our keynote speaker at our very first Black History Month conference. Nice. And I can never thank him enough. It's always been yes, yes, yes. And I look to return that. And that's to all of you. I look mm -hmm. to return those same sentiments. Thank you, Fred. Thank you yep. very much.